Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you today. Today we are looking at our study concerning Isaiah's Messiah, the names of Jesus primarily found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And so I'd like to read that again, as we normally do, to start us out. And Isaiah prophesies this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we're looking at these elements of what this prophetic word gives us about the coming Messiah. And we're seeing how these are completely fulfilled in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. I want to just review briefly. We looked at in the first episode the child that is born. This speaks of his humanity, the fact that he would be a male child, a son come in the flesh. Then we saw how he is the son that is given. Not just any male child, not just any son, but the son of the living God come in the flesh. Then in the third lesson, we talked about how he is also called Wonderful Counselor or the Wonder of a Counselor. Some Jewish versions read Wonder of a Counselor, speaking of his brilliance and his wisdom, even shown in amazing situations where he would not violate his heart and his mission, even if others tried to trap him. And we looked at one powerful example of that in John chapter 8, when they thought they had him in a gotcha moment, and yet in his brilliance, Jesus came forth, not, uh, not violating God's law, honoring God's original law, but also bringing the truth of that law and the reality of what God's heart was to bear in that situation. So I encourage you, if you've not heard those prior episodes, to go back and listen to those as well. Today we will discuss the next name, per se, that Isaiah calls the coming Messiah, and this is the Mighty God. You may say we skipped a little bit when it talked about the government being on his shoulders. We're coming back to that. It will be brought up again, and we will discuss that. But I want to look at these names. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, today we're looking at Mighty God. The Hebrew word for these two English words are El Gabor. Now, I've done a series on the names of God called Run, Kitty, Run, and it actually stretched into about three volumes. There were so many things to consider there, but one of those is on El Gabor. You can certainly look that up in the archives if you would like to. The series title was Run, Kitty, Run. I can't remember exactly which volume or what lesson number it is, but there is one there on El Gabor, the mighty God. But let's look at this 
from this angle today in reference to Yeshua, the Messiah, Isaiah's promised Messiah that would come. The one that God spoke and prophetically gave through Isaiah to tell us about. El Gabor. Gabor means powerful or valiant, very strong, forceful, a champion, a warrior, a strong man, a brave man. Notice he is called the mighty God. Here again, proof positive. He is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, come in the flesh. He is El, the same as Elohim. You will find both used in the Old Testament. One simply is singular and one is plural. God is the three-in-one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship the three-in-one God who is completely in unity, even in his diversity or in his plurality. It's the same thing as him being the creator God when it spoke about that in Genesis chapter 1. He is also the same as when in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, he speaks in the beloved Shema about his name being El Echad, the Lord Echad, the one who is one in plurality, the united one in every part, the one who is the same. God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. This also speaks of the Creator God, the one who created all things according to Genesis 1 and 2 and made Adam and Eve. He's the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the Almighty One, the One of Strength, the One True God, Yahweh. Isaiah is telling us here he is powerful. Let's look at this mighty God, this name for Yeshua, and let's consider several things that the Bible tells us about being fulfilled in the person of Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is powerful. He is able to do miracles. In Genesis chapter 15, I believe it is, God spoke to Abraham, and Abraham was asking him about the son, and, and Abraham thought, well, I guess I'm just going to have to leave my inheritance to Eleazar, my servant, the, the man over my household. And God said, no, oh no, you just don't know yet, Abraham, what I'm fixing to do for you, what I'm about to do for you. You just don't know what I'm about to do for you yet, Abraham. I am El Shaddai. I am the God of the seemingly impossible. I am the God of more than enough. I am going to give you and Sarai the son that I've promised in spite of the deadness of your body in the sense of being able to procreate at that season in their life. God said, no, I'm the almighty. I'm El Shaddai. I'm the powerful one. I'm the God of the seeming impossible. The mighty God is able to do mighty things beyond human ability 
and beyond nature and physical restraints. For instance, let's consider several examples from the New Testament. And I'm not going to read all of these, but there are, the, there are these and others. You can certainly look them up. I encourage you to read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God is the mighty God able to do miracles. Jesus came on the scene as the mighty God, proving himself to be the mighty God because of these things that we are studying today. He did miracles. He healed the man with the withered hand. He made the blind see. He healed the leper. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. He raised the dead. He did things that were seemingly impossible. I want to read a couple things about those. First of all, in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, I want to read verses 1 and 2. And it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud. Yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. This is speaking of later when Jesus comes back. He says this, though, that will leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. The Son of Righteousness arose with healing in his wings. Who was that? That was Yeshua the Messiah. One example was when the woman touched the hem of his garment. She touched his tallit because she recognized who he was. She recognized he was the son of righteousness, the mighty God, the one who has healing. And she needed healing. She recognized him as the promised Messiah that Malachi spoke about here. And she believed in him. That's why if you read the story in the Gospels about her, you will find where she said, I have to get to him. I have to touch his tallit. I have to touch his garment. I have a message on that called the healing him, H-E-M. And it talks about that in detail. But she had recognized he is the one that Malachi spoke about. He's the promised Messiah of our Old Testament. And I have to touch his tallit. I have to reach him because he is Messiah with healing in his wings. Jesus was able to do one of the greatest miracles in the sense of overcoming natural constraints in raising the dead. And I want to look at that from John chapter 11. The story is found in verses 1 through 44. I will read some select verses as we go along. In John chapter 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now let's stop there for a moment. So Jesus gets the message sent from Mary and Martha that the one he loves, his dear friend Lazarus, is sick, is very sick. And the Bible tells us, he says, this is not unto death. Now, you would read this story and you would think Jesus is lying or whatever here. No, he wasn't. He meant it's not unto death that is final. He's not going to be buried and forgotten about. He's not going to enter eternity. He is saying this sickness is not unto death, even though he did physically die as we read later as we keep on reading in this story. So Jesus hears Lazarus is very sick. And the Bible says he loved Lazarus, but he stayed. He stayed two more days where he was. He didn't pack up and go because he knew that God had a stronger and greater purpose. He could have gone right then and healed Lazarus right then. But God wanted to show forth the fact that he is the ruler even over death. He is the mighty God that is the champion even over death, one of the last enemies that we have according to the scriptures. So he stayed there for a season, for a few more days. And then beginning in verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps but I go that I may wake him up. Now, he's talking about the fact that he is dead now. He has died now. At this point, Jesus knows that Lazarus has died. And so he said, I go to wake him up. In other words, I go to resurrect him. Many times in the New Testament, death is referred to as a sleep. And resurrection is referred to as an awaking, waking up. Then his disciples said, because they didn't understand what he meant, then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to them. So you keep on reading and you find out they go. Lazarus has been dead now for four days, and he meets Mary and Martha. They're upset, of course, because their brother has died. They feel like, in some ways, it might be Jesus' fault because they feel like he could have come right then and healed him. And in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So he's telling Martha, don't worry about it. I've got it under control. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is telling us here, we may physically die, but if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never experience the second death. You will never experience that eternal separation from him. You will live forever. 
even after this old body, this tent of our shell of a body, is buried in the ground, we will still live forever. He is the resurrection. He was able to raise the dead. So Jesus then is going to heal Lazarus to prove to them what he was saying. Jump down to verse 34. And he said, meaning Jesus, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? All right, let's stop here for a moment. Some of the people were saying, well, he, he could have saved him. He could have healed him. But now he's dead, so it's too late now. This Savior, this Messiah, it's too late. He can't do anything now that Lazarus is already dead. That's what they were saying. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And then we see Martha trying to rebut that. She's like, Lord, he stinks now. I mean, it's been four days. His body is starting to deteriorate. He stinks. Now you better not open the stone. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe me, you would see the glory of God? Hallelujah. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Jesus proved that he was the mighty God, the God of the seemingly impossible, the God of miracles, the powerful, almighty God by raising Lazarus from the dead. He had already raised a few others from the dead earlier in his ministry. But this is a powerful example for all those who were standing by to see and to recognize not only could he heal, not only could he deliver people, not only could he deliver them from demons and other things they were bound to, but he could also raise the dead. He had power over death itself. And he proved that by raising Lazarus from the dead and making it evident to those who stood by who had said he could have healed him, but he can't raise him from the dead. And God said, oh, no, you hadn't seen anything yet. You just wait. And God, the mighty God, in the person of Jesus Christ, raised Lazarus from the dead. Praise be to God. I want to go next to Matthew chapter 14, because this mighty God also is powerful enough that he overcomes physical limitations. He overcomes the laws of nature itself that he established when he created the world. But as creator, he has power over those laws. 
and his word is powerful enough to supersede all laws of nature. Let's look at Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. It says this, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. That tells us it was between 3 a.m. and 6, 6 a.m. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, he could do this then only because of the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who could supersede nature's laws. Verse 30, But when he, meaning Peter, saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Praise be to God. He had believed in Jesus' word. He had stepped out on faith, but then he got to looking around and going, oh, this is scary. And he had become afraid and sunk and was sinking. And he cried out, thank God that God will rescue us when we cry out to him. Lord, save me. 30, verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Where did they get that from? They got it from the fact that they knew what the Old Testament had prophesied. They knew the scroll of Isaiah. They knew what Isaiah had said about the coming promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Son that was given. And one of the things about him was he would be the mighty God, the all-powerful God. Only the creator God, the God of miracles, the God who can do the impossible in the natural, could do these mighty works. He had the strength, the force, and the bravery also as mighty God to lay down his life to endure all sorts of torture involved in his death on the cross, including the crucifixion itself. And he did it willingly. I want you to see that from one example way back in the Psalms. The Psalms are quite prophetic, actually, and we may be doing a series soon about some of the Psalms and the Psalmists those who wrote them. But one prophetic psalm is Psalm 118. And this is the very last psalm that Jesus would have read 
and some recited with his disciples right before they head to Gethsemane because it was the final song of the Hillel, which are the songs that are read at Passover in the Seder. And the very last one is Psalm 118. I encourage you to read Psalm 118 in light of the fact that it is the last psalm that Jesus would read on his way to Gethsemane and the cross, knowing exactly that this psalm was speaking about him. I want to begin the reading in verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Think about Jesus reading that song, knowing what the next 24 hours held for him. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Verse 26 there proves to us that this is messianic about Messiah because even the rabbis, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, etc., knew this scripture spoke of Messiah. And when it was quoted by the people, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the Pharisees tried to shut them up because they knew it was a messianic cry. Listen to verse 27. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus, reading this, is saying, I will allow myself the sacrifice, the only pleasing sacrifice for sin, the Passover lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world is now willingly saying these words, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. He was referring to him being willing to get upon that cross and allow them to bind him to that cross, the altar that he was to shed his blood on and be killed on as the Passover lamb to take away the sin of the world. Then he went and he fought through the struggle in Gethsemane, the place of pressing of the olives, the place where they would press the olives and crush them to get the purest of the oil from inside. This took a mighty God a mighty God to willingly allow himself to be bound for the sin of the world to that old cross. The mighty God who willingly fought through the human struggle inside to allow himself to be pressed in the place of pressing, the place called Gethsemane. As we draw to a close, I want to examine two final points. The first one is the greatest miracle of all that this mighty God does on a daily basis for 
anyone and everyone. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, it says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Jesus is mighty to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. What does that mean? It means he is mighty to save. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, prophetically speaks about the coming Messiah. And actually in that specific verse, he is talking about him being the Messiah that's coming as the coming king in a future time. And he is mighty to save. He is mighty to save from the time he came the first time all the way through. He is the mighty God, mighty to save, mighty to take a stone-hearted sinner, stone-cold, and turn them into a brand new creation in Jesus Christ, which is exactly what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He talked about how we are cleansed from our sins and we are made brand new. Jesus washes away all sin and filthiness, cleansing a person from deep within, and they are a brand new creation. They are freed from the bondage of sin. They are born again, like he talked about in John chapter 3. They are justified by faith alone before the Holy God. He writes their names in the Lamb's book of life and gives them citizenship in heaven with him in right relationship forever. They are doing life with him as he is also called Emmanuel, and he is becoming their shepherd, giving them tender care. Praise be to God. And lastly, I want you to note that this same Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he is still the mighty God. Then he will prove himself to be champion over death, hell, and the grave, which he accomplished at the cross. But not only that, he will be the champion of the world. I want to read Psalm 24, verse 7 through 10. Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is another prophetic psalm speaking about when Jesus comes again in this passage, in the end to establish his kingdom, his kingdom reign that Revelation tells us about as the champion of the world, as the king of kings, as the Lord mighty and strong, mighty in battle. He will champion over all evil. 
He will destroy all evil and even death, hell, and the grave finally itself by casting them into the lake of fire forever. He will defeat all of his enemies as the mighty warrior. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 21, tells us all about his coming and how he will defeat all of his enemies on that day. Hallelujah. Jesus is the mighty God. From beginning to end, the scriptures tell us about this mighty God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever as the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, verse 8 and 9 tells us. All the way from the creation in the Garden of Eden through Revelation, Jesus is the mighty God. He is the creator. He is the one who has relationship with those who come to him. He struggled through his own humanity. He overcame laws of nature. He overcame physical ailments and healed the sick, raised the dead. Praise be to God, walked on water. And he is coming as the ultimate champion, the victor over all enemies. And then he will reign as mighty God, the king of glory in his coming kingdom. Isaiah's Messiah is proven to be the mighty God. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh to save us and bring us into a relationship with him. I pray that this has been a blessing to you and Lord willing, you can join us again for more episodes as we close out Isaiah's Messiah in a few coming episodes in this particular study. God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.